0: I invite you to take a copy of God's word this morning. Open to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus 20, the first 17 verses. We'll read those together in a moment. I'm reminded of what Peter says in 1 Peter. He tells us that we have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And he quotes Isaiah and he says this, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Forever. My flesh, your flesh, all flesh throughout all time will fail, will wither. We might try to do a lot to make it unwither. But what is lasting? What is forever? What never withers? It's the living and abiding Word of God that we hold to, that we're thankful for. So we come to the final word of the ten words, the tenth commandment this morning, and let's read Exodus 20, 1 through 17 together. So would you stand with me as we read together Exodus 20, the first 17 verses. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his, female, or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, what we have not, give us what we know not teach us, and what we are not make us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we come to the last word, the final word of the ten words. The climax of all the words in one sense, and we might place emphasis on someone's last words. What are the last words we would hear someone say, and how important we often think those words are. We hang on people's final words. And so here is Yahweh's last word. Of these ten words that he spoke to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. These words that are from the fire. Words that are branded and seared into our minds and into our souls. We have come to find that these words are not merely law. These words are not merely a list of do's and don'ts. The law that the Israelites were receiving was a law that was to be written by the finger of God and etched into two stone tablets. And these are not some dry, lifeless, uncaring, unthoughtful, slavery-ridden law that's meant to drag us down and steal our joy. No, this is a law, ten words, given from the very heart of God telling us who God is, and intimately revealing God to us. And all of these words are enveloped in a relationship with God, a covenant, promises that He is making to His people, and promises that His people are making to Him. He as their father, they as His firstborn son, He as their husband, they as his beautiful, chosen, and precious bride. When God gives these ten words, he is unfolding his heart to his people. God opens his heart to those who are his. And what happens when God opens his heart to his people? His people are to reciprocate in opening up their hearts to Him. And that is the way it always works. It's God loving first. All we can do is respond to His love. God's ten words are meant to make us run to Him, run into His embrace, run to His love and to His mercy. We run to Him because we understand that His words are more than just external actions that He's given us to do. These are words that are more than just checking off the boxes On a list. These words are meant to capture our hearts. They are meant to penetrate into the depths of our souls. They are meant to lay us bare and exposed before a holy God so that we see clearly who He is and so that we see clearly who we are. This final word is like a two edged sword that pierces into the depths of our hearts. But with the last word, God gets to the heart of our problem. The heart of our problem is a heart problem. This is where all of our problems begin. begin. We might think that all of our problems exist out there, that they are external, that they are just around us. That our problems are everything that might be attacking us. But what does God say is our problem? Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. We can't trust Our own hearts. They are deceitful. They are sick. And what does Jeremiah say? They're desperately sick. It's not a little bit sick, it's a sickness that comes down to the very depths and core of who we are. And Jesus says something similar in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. is that we have a heart problem. The law was never meant simply to modify our behavior. That would be like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. that would be like putting a band-aid on someone who needs a heart transplant. How many band-aids have you put on? One? Two? A hundred? Have you covered yourself with band-aids desperately trying to fix the problem, but you've never come face to face with the real problem. And how many people maybe have themselves covered with band-aids, all the ways that they think that they've fixed themselves, all the way that they think they've made themselves better. Look at all that I've done. Look at all the band-aids that I have on my body. Look at all the way that I've Fixed myself when fundamentally their heart hasn't been changed. Their heart hasn't been fixed. They don't have a heart of flesh. They have a heart of stone. The Pharisees were people like that. They had hundreds and hundreds of band-aids all over their bodies of all of the ways that they had thought that they had fixed themselves. But what was underneath? dead man's bones. You whitewashed tombs. And I fear that sometimes that danger can even be within the church. Let's just modify our behavior. Let's just fix some of the externals. When fundamentally it's not a band aid that's going to fix, it's a heart transplant that's going to fix. The heart of our problem is a problem with our heart. That's why Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 30:60, and the Lord God, the Lord your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That was their problem. That is what they needed. The Israelites needed, and we need the Lord to circumcise our hearts. We need Him to give us new hearts. We need Him to give us hearts that will love Him and that are set apart for Him and that are completely devoted to Him. And here is what is so dangerous. If we're just about putting Band-Aids on the externals and trying to fix ourselves... We can control that. I can control how many band aids I put on. Ah, yes, one, two, a hundred. When God transplants a heart, He requires all of you, everything. Nothing holding back. He requires it all. That's why maybe we like band-aids more than a heart transplant. What happens when your heart is transplanted? So that you will love the Lord your God with all that you are that you may live. It's the Lord himself who searches our hearts perfectly and who knows ultimately and fundamentally what it is that we need is a change of heart, a new heart. And that's the heart that we need as we come to this last word in the ten words, you shall not covet. Yahweh goes straight for our hearts. He goes straight to the root of the problem. He doesn't shy away from what truly ails us. Some Puritans have called this word spiritual dropsy. And we don't use that medical term much anymore, dropsy. But from what I've read, and what I've been told, when someone has dropsy, their hands, their feet begin to swell because their heart isn't working properly. It can't circulate all the blood. It shows that there is heart failure. And so, when there's this coveting that's taking root in our heart, what happens? It's showing that our heart is failing. There's a problem in our heart. What is coveting as we see here in this word? What does it mean to covet? Coveting means to crave or yearn for that which is not yours. It is an internal heart activity where one has an inordinate and ungoverned selfish desire for something. It's an unquenching longing for what is off limits. This is what describes Eve. Eve before she took and ate the fruit. Genesis 3, 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There was the problem. Before it was the external action, what was going on? Something was going on in Eve's heart in here. Your heart problem, my heart problem is not a new problem. It goes all the way back to our first parents. And it can be secret. Coveting can easily be kept in the dark. If you look at the other 10 words, maybe you could say there's evidence of these things taking place, there's evidence of these things happening. Who's to know, though, if you've coveted in your heart? Who's to call you out on it? In fact, do you want to know how many people have come to me over the years and said, Pastor, you know, I really am struggling with covetousness. Nobody. Why not? It's not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, doesn't everybody covet? Isn't it all right? I mean, go back to the big ones. Well, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything. Would we ever consider that coveting might be a big problem? <laughs> Who is going to act as judge over a coveting heart? It is the Lord and the Lord alone. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. No man might ever discover that you are coveting in your heart, and no man might ever be able to prosecute you for your coveting heart. Coveting is something that is done before the Lord. Are we willing to guard our hearts against coveting? Are we willing to let the Lord lay our hearts bare and show us where we are coveting? Maybe he would even show us for the first time that we are covetous. Are we going to let the Lord get to our hearts? Instead of saying, well, I look pretty good on the outside. But God says, ah, yes, what about your heart? Let me give you four reasons this morning why we should beware of covetousness. Four reasons, four motivations That I hope would make you want to run away from having a heart that covets. Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. Do not covet because it damages your relationship with others. Do not covet because it damages your relationship with others. Coveting is never done in a vacuum. We're tempted to think coveting only affects me. It happens in my heart, in my inner man. It will not have any effect on others. They won't even know about it. It will be my little secret that I can hold on to myself. But look here at Exodus 20, verse 17. Notice that this is only the second word that mentions our neighbor. So word number nine... You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That was the first time we heard that word. But now, in this last word, Yahweh uses that word neighbor three times. This is not your next door neighbor, it's those who live in close proximity to you. Even remember the person who came to Jesus and asked that question Who is my neighbor? even those people that you might consider your enemies. So here we are with this focus or this emphasis on your neighbor. These things that you are coveting, they belong to your neighbor. They don't belong to you. They're not yours. They are off limits. Yet you see them and you want them. You long for them and you begin to become consumed by them. I think the first line of this 10th commandment gives the broad scope of what not to covet. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Now, we might think of that as their physical house. I can look at someone's house and I can say, wow, they have a great, nice, big house. I want that house. While this is prohibiting that, this idea of house is broader. It's this idea of household. Do not covet your neighbor's household, and then I think the second line of this word gets to the specifics. What does this household look like? What's in this household that you're not supposed to covet? Well, it's your neighbor's wife first. And Now this could be a lusting after your neighbor's wife with passion. It could also be this lusting after your neighbor's wife industriousness like a Proverbs 31 woman. She's frugal. She's a good helpmate. And you think, ha, huh, I wish my wife was a little bit more like that. And let us not think that this word is just for the man. Wife, do not think, ah, I wish my husband was just a little bit more like that guy. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant. There were servants in the household who helped the house function, who actually bring prosperity and success to the house. And the more servants you had, the more successful your house was considered. And so he's saying, don't look covetous eyes on the success of your neighbor's house. Look at how industrious they are. Look at how much they're producing. Look at how much they have. I wish I could have that. I wish I could have their success. Or his ox or his donkey. This is an idea of wealth. The more oxen you had, the more donkeys you had, the more wealthy you were. And so there's this idea of don't covet your neighbor's wealth either. If he's wealthy, don't want his wealth. And then... If anything had been left out, the Lord sums it up all, or anything that is your neighbor's. Just in case I've left anything out, let me just say it crystal clear, anything that is your neighbor's, don't covet it. Don't long for it. And let us not be so naive to think that we could want all of our neighbor's stuff and that it would not have an effect on our relationship with him or her. What happens when you continually covet that which is not yours? You start to become jealous of other people. Jealous of what they have. Jealous of what God has given them. And in our eyes, how oftentimes we think what God has not given us. You distrust His good providence. Distrust that His provision is perfect. Not only do you become jealous, but you also begin to harbor envy and bitterness in your heart toward your neighbor. Coveting allowed to fester in your heart does not just stay coveting. Look at Romans 1 with me for a moment. Romans 1, verses 28 through 32. Romans 1, beginning in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled ruthless though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them and take a look for a moment at that list there look at how many of those affect other people all of these sins that have a damaging effect on others your sin is not just contained to yourself it affects those around you if you covet what is your neighbors and think that you will have a good and healthy relationship with that person think again go over a few more books to the book of james james chapter 4 James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You, what? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Do you see what James says there? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And we remember that Jesus... Boils down all of the law into two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. If you are coveting your neighbor's spouse or success or stuff, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Do not damage your relationship with your neighbor by coveting in your heart against him. Number two, do not covet because it destroys true worship Of God. Do not covet because it destroys true worship of God. This last word, this final word, this tenth word has very close connections to the very first word You shall have no other gods before me. Where does that begin? Having no other gods before God begins in your Heart as well. We have to see that condensing the law into loving the Lord with your whole heart, with all that you are, and loving your neighbor as yourself go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And if you don't have one, then you don't have the other as well. We love God, we just don't love one another. then, well, I'm sorry, but newsflash, you don't love God. And you can't say, well, I love others, but I just don't love God. Then, let's be honest, are you really loving your neighbor the way you are supposed to? The way that God wants? Are you loving them by his definition of love or by your own? So while coveting is harmful and, love and unloving to our neighbor, it's also unloving to our sovereign Lord. What do we do when we covet? We set our hearts, we set our affections and our desires upon someone or something other than God. We are not setting our hearts and our affections and our desires upon the one who is deserving of them. We are coveting and building an altar in our hearts to those people and to those things that are not God and we're wanting to worship them. We are elevating the creature over the creator. We are exchanging the truth about God for a lie. We are making gods after our own image and after our own likeness. We are denouncing God, saying, God, you are not worthy of our praise, our joy, and our delight. We covet and we say, God, you are not worthy of our worship. We have found something else, someone or something else to take your place in our hearts, Become consumed, not with God as they should be, but with someone or something that is not God, but that we wish was God. And that we want to make God. The covetous person is an idolater. Coveting gives glory to another besides God. Coveting does not just secretly attack your neighbor. It's an outright assault upon the holy and almighty God. Listen to this verse from Ephesians 5, starting in 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Where does Paul here, in these words, put coveting? He says, if you are covetous, you are an idolater. Or listen to Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming on the account of covetous hearts. Do we think coveting is serious? It is in God's eyes. That's why the Apostle John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Do not covet because coveting destroys true worship of God. Number three, do not covet because it develops discontentment within you. Do not covet because it develops discontentment within you. It develops discontentment within you. Why do we covet? Why do we crave and yearn for that which does not belong to us? is it not because we are discontent with what God has given us? And what happens when you're discontent? You criticize. How many discontent critics criticize God for how he has provided for them? Have you ever been a discontent critic of God? Our culture breeds discontentment. It feeds on it. How many marketing schemes, how many advertising agendas revolve around people's discontent state? The world knows it. They feel it. They have desires. They have longings. They have wants. They need to be fed. There's something within them that they know is missing. What is it that is going to bring the satisfaction that they are looking for and that you are looking for? What would it take to make you completely content? What would it take? What is keeping you from being content? How much time in your day is spent being content? A Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs published a book in 1648 entitled, The Rare Jewel of Christian contentment. 1648, he said, what's the problem with Christians? They're missing something. There's a rare jewel. You can't find it. It's hard to find. What is missing? The rare jewel of Christian contentment. I wonder if the Lord were to look for that jewel in his church today how many rare jewels he would find. Christian contentment is not a nice little extra thing that you might like to add on to your life. Christian contentment is the duty, the glory, and the excellence of a Christian. This is how Jeremiah Burroughs defines Christian contentment. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet Gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. If our God is all sufficient, and He is, then we must find all of our satisfaction in our hearts through the grace of Christ that is in us. Paul gives us a remedy to coveting that takes place in our hearts. He says this, you can read it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. Verses 6 and 7 say this, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Would we ever equate godliness with contentment? There is a godly person. How do you know they're godly? Because look at how content they are. And people who are content Do you hear what he says? I have learned in whatever situation, whether I have abundance or whether I am in need, to be content. And then that verse that we love, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How can you be content in every situation? Not on your own strength not by your own will or self-determination, God gives you the strength to be content in every circumstance. Wherever He has placed you, whatever you are going through, whether there is need or whether there is abundance, we can be content. Because we are those who have submitted ourselves to God. We've said, God, we know and trust that you are in control. So we've submitted ourselves to God as the orchestrator and ordainer of our days. And this is the only way forward, the only way to possess contentment. It must come from Him and it must begin with Him. Here is the problem with our world and sometimes the problem that we fall into. those who find momentary peace apart from God should see it for what it is an illusion there are people in this world who think that they can find peace but it's only a momentary peace and any peace that is apart from God is an illusion it's no peace at all it will not last there will be no lasting contentment those who find contentment without God only find a lower form of pleasure one that is ultimately empty. It's nothing. There's nothing there. Once we learn that peace and contentment only come from God, we begin to learn and know that ultimately we were made for Him and for His glory. And so so we can pray like Augustine prayed. The thought of you stirs one so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you Because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they find their rest in you. Do you find contentment in praising God? Finally, number four do not covet because it drives you to be dominated by sinful desires. Do not covet because it drives you to be dominated by sinful desires. Coveting, unchecked, unexamined, and unattended leads you to more sinful desires. Covetousness is dangerous because it is a subtle sin that clothes itself or can clothe itself in virtuous attire. I just want to provide for my family. After all that I've been through, I'm entitled to a little bit of happiness. And The more subtle the sin, the less discernible it is, and the easier it becomes to ignore. However, as you read through the New Testament, the topic of desires resurfaces over and over and over again. Just consider Galatians chapter 5 faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Perhaps at this point we are torn because we would say the desires and the longings in my heart are so strong, I cannot control them. They get the better of me time and time and time again. I don't know how I'm going to break out of these desires. I don't know how I'm going to break out of this covetous heart. We would do well to listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about how the Lord views our desires. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong But too weak. We are half hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Where should our desires lie? Just as our contentment comes from the Lord, so our desire should be for the Lord. We must desire Him more than anyone else, more than anything else. Then we will know what it is no longer to covet. It's not simply that we are to put our evil desires to death to crucify them. We are, but we are also to replace those evil desires with good desires. And what's the main problem in our hearts? We don't desire Christ the way that we should. Isaiah 53. Look at this. You have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 53. Last minute here. Isaiah 53. Verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Who in their right mind would desire and want a crucified Messiah? Nobody. There's nothing there. There's no beauty. There's no, there's no attractiveness that would make us want to desire Jesus Christ. But look at what he has done for us. There, when we realize that all of our sins were put on him, when he bore our griefs, when he carried our sorrows, when he was pierced for our transgressions, there is where the beauty lies. Because Jesus Christ was our substitute on that cross, bearing God's judgment and bearing God's wrath. Why? To capture your heart and my heart. To say, that He is the one that we should desire above anyone or anything else. There is no one else. There is no one more beautiful than Christ. And the beauty is seen in the wounds of His hands and of His side and of His feet. Jesus Christ died so that He might possess Our hearts. Let us not try to wrestle our hearts away from Him by coveting that which is not ours. And isn't this what we want to set our minds upon? Set our minds upon heavenly things. Set our minds upon great things. Set our minds upon the salvation that Christ has purchased for us through His death and through His resurrection. And now that all who put their faith and trust in Him can no longer be earthly-minded people, but now can be heavenly-minded people. That is freedom. Covetousness chains men's heart to earth while we preach to get their hearts to heaven. And here is what's so dangerous. Thomas Watson says this, covetousness hinders the efficacy of the word preached. If you harbor covetousness, In your heart, what happens? You will not hear the word. The cares of this world will choke out the word preached. That's what Jesus says about the seed that's sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. How many, how many have the hands of this world around their neck squeezing out the very breath of them because they cannot hear the word of god faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of christ we might as well tell an elephant to fly as to tell someone who's coveting to live by faith? Are you living by faith, knowing that God will care for all of your needs? Or are you focused on how much you think God owes you? Father, turn our eyes to Jesus. Turn our eyes to the beauty of our Savior. Turn our eyes to His sacrifice and to the gift of grace that comes through Him. Let us not be earthly minded, but let us be heavenly minded. Because our desire above all is Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here this morning who has heard the word and they've come to realize that the earth has a chokehold on them, that they today would put their faith and trust in Jesus turn from their sin. You would give them a new heart. Remove the heart of stone. Give a heart of flesh. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.